Welcome to the Talking With Tech Podcast. My name is Chris Bouguet, and I'm here with Rachel Madel. Rachel, what is going on this week? I have a story to share about a parent coaching session. Okay, let's hear it. So I, as many of our listeners know, as definitely you know, Chris, um, a lot of the work that I do now is with parent coaching and a lot of it, um, actually all of it is done remotely and virtually. I'd use videos and that's how I'm able to kind of walk through interactions with communication partners, not just parents. I also, you know, do coaching with other SLPs and, you know, ABA therapists, lots of other different professionals, but mostly parents. Um, and I was working with one of my coaching clients and we were watching a video back and the topic of questioning came up um, as a level of prompting. So oftentimes, um, you know, when we're thinking about giving our students support that's scaffolded in order to, you know, teach them language and help them utilize the language that we're teaching, we're oftentimes using some level of prompting. We've talked about the least to most prompting hierarchy, how to utilize that after you've given sufficient aided language input and modeling for a word uh, or phrase, um, then you're going to be utilizing something, you know, to, to fade those supports, right? So anyway, we're watching this uh, video back and she was trying to elicit a place and I think the, 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 the student said, go. Yeah. He said, go. And she's like, but where do you want to go? So I paused the video. Um, and I knew that this student, um, at least based on everything else I had heard and seen up until that point was not at a place where they were answering WH questions. Um, and so of course, like I'm, I'm in a coaching session, so I'm asking reflective questions and I asked the mom, do you think that he knows how to answer that question? You just asked him, where did you go? She sat and thought about it for a second. She's like, no, she, he actually doesn't know how to answer WH questions. I'm like, okay. So it really stuck out to me, Chris, because I feel like how often are we asking questions, especially WH questions to students to help, you know, and we think we're helping, right? It comes from a good place where we're like trying to get them to expand or specify, but if kids don't know how to answer a question, how to answer a WH question, then that's not really going to help them. <laughs> and this student ended up, you know, as we continue to watch the video, he started getting frustrated. Mom kept saying, where do you want to go? Where? <laughs> and so like, he was just like, you know, obviously not able to answer that question and therefore not able to specify where he wanted to go. And so it just started a really rich conversation between me and this mom about questioning and how to, you know, what other things we could do, you know, outside of questioning to help support the student. And I don't know, I just thought it would be a really good thing to talk about on the podcast. What were some of the things you came up with about, um, what were other things, you know, that the mom realized that she could say instead? Well, first of all, I think it's, imp it's important to think about how do we actually teach kids to answer WH questions? And that's like a whole, we could have a whole episode <laughs> dedicated to that, right? Because I don't know about you, Chris, but when I was in graduate school and I was learning how to be a speech language pathologist, it was like, hey, just ask kids a bunch of questions. <laughs> there was no like teaching. Like, here's how you actually teach how to answer a question. It was just like, if I ask this kid who puts out fires enough, he'll learn how to say firefighter, <laughs> right? And so like, that's how I learned 
to teach WH questions. It's not teaching at all. It's just like repeat these questions long enough that kids memorize the answers. <laughs> and like, let's hope, let's cross our fingers that it actually generalizes to them actually learning that skill. Let's, uh, let's even add to that. Oftentimes the goal uh, written on an IEP might be answer WH questions, like all WH questions are created equal, you know, but they're not created equal because a why question or a how question could be way more complicated than a where question, let alone just knowing that where means answer with a place. Um, but if you ask, like, where do you want to eat? Now you've got to decide. It's not, it, that's not as simple as just like, um, where do, where does the poop go, you know, in the potty, right? It's totally different levels of complexity. And it feels like many times that's all roped into just one thing on a goal, uh, on an IEP, which was again, probably how people taught others to do it or people did that and then didn't teach them not to do that that way. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's super interesting to kind of think about, like you said, the complexity. And when I see like a, just a WH with no specific WH, I'm like, this can't be good <laughs> because we know, like you said, answering like, what is it versus, you know, why did you feel sad? <laughs> like two very different questions that take very different language levels to answer. Yes, for sure. For sure. And uh, putting it in context, you were working with a with a parent, but I feel like this is exactly what happens to a lot of teachers. I know I have a very similar experience. I must have shared it before, or maybe I've shared it before, because it's amazing that you pulled out the firefighter example uh, just moments ago, because it's exactly my experience. I got called out to help a teacher uh, years ago now. She's like, yeah, I have this WH question goal, and I sit down next to her. I go, okay, so show me. How are you teaching WH questions? She's like, well, I have this sheet. And it has the the text written out in a in a in a box, and an arrow that goes to another box with a picture of it. So here's the text when with an arrow, and then there's a clock with a question mark next to it. And then just below that on the piece of paper is where, and so the text where with an arrow that goes to a like a map <laughs> icon, and so on and so forth. Who is then? There's a person icon, and and. I said, so how are you teaching this? And she's like, no, I ask questions like this and I show them this visual. And I'm like, yeah, but they, they can't read this visual for one. And two, like, look at this. If I covered that, you don't know this, a map. And if I said it's a map, you would say that's a map. You has no idea. And, and then it was because she was like, I said, can you give me an example? And her example was, well, like we were teaching about community helpers. So we were teaching about uh, firefighters. And like, tell me how you were teaching it. She was like, I was asking him who puts out fires and I'm pointing to the who button, you know, to the who's it's like, right. But, and she, it light dawned on her because she was like, oh, wait a second. What you're saying is I'm not teaching. I'm just doing a formative assessment. I'm like, really? That's what you're really doing in the, in the vocabulary of teachers. You're trying to figure out what a kid knows. That's formative assessment. So I said to her, maybe the way to go is like, again, use the 80-20 rule here. Do 80% teaching and 20% formative assessment. So, which means teach it five times before you... Um, before you assess it once. And that, then it was like, now the whole conversation changed. Yeah, okay, well, how am I teaching what who is? Well, okay, let's talk about who is people. Let's bring up a bunch of different people. And then um, watch videos about people and say, look, who does this? Who does that? Where? And teach that way. You know what? I was laughing while you were giving this example, Chris. 
Um, and I want to share how I started realizing that like those visuals aren't super helpful. So I, I had those visuals. I was using those visuals and this was years ago <laughs> and I was working with an autistic student and every time I would ask like, where is he or where, you know, are we? I was showing probably some type of picture of something, right? Where is it? He would literally look at the visual that had a house on it for the where. And he would say, home. <laughs> every time he would say home because <laughs> he saw a picture and I was like this this is so literal and you're so right this is a home and I know I'm confusing you right now <laughs> so you know I think that definitely we need to be teaching these concepts um, one really great thing that I use in my practice to teach WH questions is helping kids learn how to sort under the category of who and where so being able to sort places and people um I love sorting as like a receptive, you know, to teach receptive understanding of these foundational things like WH questions, for example, um, understanding that who is a person and where is a place. And there's a really great learning opportunity when you can see all the other places under where and all the people under who the same way you can see that in an AAC system, if it's categorically based, right. Um, you know, so I think just, we'd need to do a lot more teaching around it. I also would argue that we need to stop teaching kids who put fires out and start teaching them who's in their life to communicate about that's meaningful, right? Not to say that we should never, you know, teach that, but like, let's start with things that are really motivating and relevant to that student, like their family and their friends and the places that they like to go. Um, start there when you're trying to teach WH questions so that there's a really, there, there's, there's a solidified understanding that's meaningful because like if kids don't know about firefighters or they don't care about firefighters, like we're just teaching them how to memorize a question that really doesn't help them in their communication and their day-to-day. -day. 100%. Let's let's uh, dig in just for a second about the sorting activities and the matching. So so when you're sorting like who and a where, right? The I totally picture uh, many people who might do this, do it like on a little cookie sheet sitting at your desk. But I want to advocate for making it, putting it up on the interactive whiteboard and making a big gross motor movement. So uh, with Venn diagrams, so you're dragging things into the right circles or two actual buckets and picking things up and moving them and putting them in different buckets to help um, illustrate the uh, and connect the body to the experience. And really teaching it first because it's still just a different form of assessment right if you're like all right where does this go where does this go no i'm going to teach you first I w i'm like shaking my head because i'm like yes like we need to teach like look where where is a place target is a place we're going to put it in the place you know folder or whatever however you're doing the sorting or like you know you're putting them in different places like we have to teach that a lot so kids understand and they hear our rationale and our think aloud as we're like yes and this, you know, this is a person. This goes under who? Like, I'm not really seeing that. I'm just seeing, like you said, let's just ask the question and wait <laughs> without teaching. So it, this was a big aha moment for, for mom? Yes. So yeah, circling back to that coaching call, um, obviously we talked about how do we actually teach WH questions? And she's like, I think this would be a really good skill to start working on with him. I'm like, great. So we talked all about like, where do we think we could start? How do we think we could do this? He's really motivated by these places. You know, he's also motivated by people and family members in his life. So we talked about potentially doing a sorting activity. 
let's circle back to the other things we talked about that we can use for scaffolded support instead of asking questioning when we're trying to give students support and she's trying to figure out where he wanted to go because he said go, but she didn't know where. And he started getting frustrated because he kept saying, go, 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 go. And she's like, but where do you want to go? And so, you know, we landed on, okay, he's saying go open the, you know, folder that has the places in it and start giving him options. Like, did you want to go outside? Did you want to go to the car? This kid loves going to Rite Aid to get ice cream. Do you want to go to Rite Aid? Um, Give him choices, model his choices so that he starts understanding that once he says go, he can specify where he wants to go, but we just need to give him enough modeling. And we landed on she's not really done a lot of modeling around the specific places. So I was like, model the places for him. Every time you're going to those places, model the specific places. And then when you're in a situation where you're not sure what he wants uh, or where he wants to go, give him those options. And then of course that the following week she was like, it worked so well. Like he did so good. I'm like, Yes. <laughs> well, speaking of parent coaching calls, that's actually what our interview is today. It's not really a coaching call so much as a discussion where a parent reached out to us, uh, someone who's listened to the podcast for, and, and gives us feedback um, uh, quite a bit, actually. And we are so grateful for the ongoing discussion that we have. Um, and so this is our conversation. Well, I guess it's part one of our, of our conversation with Joanna Holmes. Do you love this podcast? We would love for you to take a second and leave us a review on iTunes. That way more people can find this podcast and learn how to support individuals using AAC. We also love hearing from our listeners. It reminds us that all of the hard work we put into this podcast really matters. And don't forget to subscribe so you always know when we release new podcasts. Now let's head back into the episode. Welcome to the Talking With Tech podcast. My name is Chris Bouguet and I'm here with Rachel Madel. But we are also here with our special guest interview today. Is it Joanna Holmes? Am I saying that right? Yeah, it's Joanna. Although most people call me Joe, actually. Um, it's just because of social media and my full name being on everything. Everyone calls me, started calling me Joanna now. But usually just my mom calls me that. <laughs> call me so what should, what should we call you? <clears throat> Joe. Call me Joe. Joe. All right. Well, Joe. Yeah. <laughs> Tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do. Okay. Hi, my name's Joe, um, and I am a parent carer of a little girl called Lucy, who's going to be eight in a few weeks, which is just bonkers. Um, she has a rare genetic condition called Emmanuel syndrome, and that means she has learning disabilities some physical needs. Um, and pretty complex communication needs um and she is learning to use AAC and I write a bit of a blog about that and do some social media around that too um but the other sort of string to my bow if you like is that um I am I used to work as a speech and language therapist for nearly 20 years um so I uh, qualified as a speech and language therapist in 2002 and worked briefly in special schools, in some mainstream support, then in community clinics with bilingual clients, and then went on to specialize in stammering, that's stuttering therapies. 
Um, and then when Lucy was born, things took a little change of direction and I worked for a little while in AAC with adults with learning disabilities um, and did my post-basic dysphagia qualification. But then decided that um, as Lucy's got bigger and her needs have got a bit more complex in terms of lots of things, really, that um, I needed to be full-time for her. So I am a full-time parent carer and can no longer call myself a speech and language therapist because I deregistered from our, our um, body, the Healthcare Professions Council. So I'm a parent carer with a background in speech and language. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Now, something else that I think, uh, tell me if I'm wrong here, is that you're a listener to the podcast. I mean, when Rachel and I um, really spent some time uh, thinking about how the podcast would evolve, one of the hopes and dreams we had for the podcast would be that there would be dialogue around the dialogue of the episodes. And you certainly are someone who's exemplified that. You have um, uh, written us and you have posted videos, reflection videos on what we've been talking about. And that was one of the ways we connected. Is that all fair? Yeah, yeah I think that's fair to say. I, I really appreciated the podcast, actually. It was, it's only in the last few years I've got into podcasts at all. And it was because a much younger colleague than me was doing her dysphagia training at the same time and found, uh, is it called Down the Hatch or something? There's a few like dysphagia podcasts. And so I was listening to those and I was like, there must be one about AAC. And that's how I found Talking With Tech and started listening and yeah, and then going back over, over previous issues. So I really appreciate it. And because I am no longer in a working environment as a speech and language therapist, I just really like to hear the conversation um, and just what kind of things people are talking about. And for me, as, um, as a parent who's very um, forthright in trying to make sure things happen for my daughter, it does ground me and remind me that what, in a lot of ways, what it's like to be a professional working in schools and working in contexts that aren't ideal. And it kind of, it, it reconnects me to that professional world, really, which I really value. Um, so yeah, I love listening. And I love well, contributing. <laughs> so tell us a little bit more about Lucy. You said that she's learning language. We're using AAC. What does that look like? Yeah. Wow. So it's looked like lots of things. Um, so right now where we're at is she has just got an iPad Pro um, mounted to her chair. She's using head tracking to, um, to control that. Um, but that's, that's really new. It's evolved over a long time. Um, I don't know. Do you want me to talk a little bit about the history of where we've been? That would be amazing. I think see like where we started and where we've gone to and stuff. If you feel comfortable doing that, yes, because yeah, sure. I think there's so many parents that want to hear the journey. Yeah. I also yeah. I also know Joanna that you and I have connected on social media yeah. about access and all those things. Yeah, yeah. I'm really curious. Um, and I think a lot of our listeners would be curious, you know, when you're working with a child who, you know, you can't seem to figure out the access modality and like what, you know, that whole journey, I yeah. think is really helpful to kind of listen to and hear how it's not just, it's not always as simple as like, okay, now we're going to do eye tracking or now we're going <laughs> to, you know, direct selection or, you know, it's like, it's a process. And a journey oftentimes for kids with really complex bodies. Absolutely. And then yeah, even yesterday, her mount arrived, I mounted it, and she started to using the touch screen. I was like, oh. <laughs> of course, <laughs> of course. Because she's like, what do you want me to do with yeah, this, mom? Yeah. <laughs> so um I get from Lucy, we got Lucy's diagnosis when she was only about a week old. Um 
which we were really lucky about because it meant that we could quite quickly connect um, with the Emmanuel Syndrome community. Um, there's a great um, community around chromosome 22 central um, who support lots of different chromosome 22 conditions. And so through um, getting to know people really quite quickly, it was really clear that um, children with Emmanuel syndrome have really complex communication needs. There's this stat that's like in all the books about Emmanuel syndrome, um, not that there are that many, uh, that 80% of, of children, of people with Emmanuel sy syndrome don't have um, spoken speech verbal communication is how it's written and the 80% are nonverbal. And I know that they're controversial terms. I'm just saying what it says. Mm -hmm. um, so, and as a speech and language therapist, even though I worked with people who stammer at that point, I was like, right, okay, so this is pr probably going to need to use a Big Mac or something. Um, maybe some symbols. I might do some Macaton. Um, so, yeah, that's that was where I started up from. Um, and I really felt that I didn't have many skills, but what I did have is a network of people who were speech and language therapists. So the privilege of really ready access to people going, okay, <laughs> no, what do I do? Um, so quite early, we, we went to a toddler group um, and luckily there were speech and language therapists at the place that we went to that. And they weren't serving the toddler group per se, but I was like, hey, I'm a speech therapist. Tell me what the research says at the minute. What do I need to know? And that is where I found out about core vocabulary. Um, which kind of blew my mind a little bit, really, because back in 2002, when I worked in special schools, there was lots of labelling things and shrinking crisp packets to make objects of reference for one particular kind of crisps, <laughs> which now I think, oh, my goodness, why did I do that? Um, so we started with a, a nine-symbol cardboard and some Macaton um, signs and a Big Mac for kind of some cause and effect and switch toys and that kind of thing. Uh, we did to begin with. Joe, can this I ask a question? Yeah, I mean, sure. You're, you're using a term that I'm not sure everyone would be familiar with. What's Makaton? Okay. Okay. So Makaton um, is, a, well, it's actually a language program. That's how they describe it here um, when you go on the, the training. So um, a lot of, it's a, it's a manual sign system, basic information. <laughs> It's a manual sign system. They do have symbols as well, actually, to Makaton. I think anybody listening who's familiar with Makaton who heard me say it's just a manual sign system will go, no, no, we have symbols too. Um, uh, it's really quite widely used in the UK, particularly the, the manual signs element of it. Um, they're very clear that it's not a language in the way that British Sign Language is a language. It's quite um, prescriptive in the terms of how you use the signs and things like that. And um and the training they encourage people to go on to provide it. But that's basically what it is. It's a manual sign. Okay. You might want to edit out some of that going on about Makaton. I don't know. No, I think that's great. <laughs> that, Cause that's really, like, many people listening might not know what that is. So I think it's yeah. really uh, important that we clarify those terms and yeah. are crackers, right? As another term that we are chips or <laughs> chips, chips, They're like potato chips, crisps or <laughs> chips here. <laughs> What did I say? Crackers? No, no. no said, she said crisps, but but we would say chips. Oh, okay. <laughs> it's another term okay. to clarify. Yeah, okay. Because <laughs> sometimes I would describe something as crackers if I thought it was like a bit 
crazy of like, hey, that's absolutely crackers. Right. <laughs> and I was like, did I say something with crackers? Uh, no, no, just like no. British, oh, British okay. isms that we love. Yes. Okay. <laughs> Please continue. You were doing such an excellent job before I um, interrupted. Okay. <laughs> yeah. It, it just feels like such a long story when I really start going. So we didn't actually see a speech and language therapist until Lucy was about two and a half. We saw somebody for feeding, but not for uh, communication until, somebody, until Lucy was two and a half. And that did not go terribly well, because by this point, I'd spent a couple of years looking at what was what was what and skilling myself up and understanding where things were at. And I um, read um, Gail Porter and Linda Brookhart's article about the representational hierarchy. And so I'd come into this thinking, OK, so we need to teach objects and then photographs and then symbols. And then because that's where that's what I'd learned. Mm-hmm. And so that blew my mind a little bit as well, that actually we could go straight to symbols. Uh, it also blew the mind of the therapist who came to see us at home and she just didn't agree. Um, and I showed her a cardboard that we'd been using with more, it had more stock, like see or look, I think, with nine words. Um, go was definitely on there. And we'd been using that in just playing with bubbles or whatever. We do a lot of playing with bubbles still. Um, and she was just going, no, but these, these, these ideas are too complex it's, and the, the symbols are too abstract and she won't be able to learn them. And I was like, no, no, she will, she will. Let me send you some research. Um, so we didn't have a great start with speech and language therapy, really. Um, we haven't had speech and language therapy that supports AAC really well until she started school. She started school in September 2019. And we all know what happened in March 2020. Um, so that was where we went with, with that. Um, in November, 2019, I went to the Angelman UK conference for work. This is when I was working with adults with learning disabilities and saw Jane Farrell present, um, her, oh, I can't remember the name of the presentation, but it's a, the actual presentation I was at is available online as a, a video. It, it was just brilliant and really gave me a lot of enthusiasm for um, saying, yeah, okay, why have we only got nine symbols? And why aren't I looking at something that's broader, that gives her more opportunities? Um, And along with her therapist then in school, we decided, we we also um, were able to to get hold of an iPad. Um, We had a sad event in the family, somebody um, passed away. Um, but we were we were given their iPad so that Lucy could have a dedicated iPad for communication. Um, so we decided to go for Supercore 30, which is a smart box vocabulary, um, which is a good, robust vocabulary. It's got, got lots in there on an iPad using touch access because we'd seen that she could access really quite small things on a game um, uh, on an iPad. Um, so we were like, right, well, let's, let's go for that, see what happens. Um, so she had that for, for a couple of years. Um, but what really became apparent was that her, her motor needs were quite complex and that she, was, she wasn't isolating a finger at all. She quickly understood that the iPad was to get things um, or to say things, or, and that there was a message involved, but she would hit the whole thing with her whole hand, or sometimes she would kind of, um, 
I was going to show you, but I have to remember that, that um, this is going out as audio. So she would like put her whole hand on the screen and then just tap one finger or another finger on it. And it became really tricky. We knew she wanted to say something, but we didn't know what she was targeting. She's a very, very early communicator. So we also weren't sure what we were reinforcing because we might think she had wanted to say like it and she maybe had wanted to say go but because a whole hand was there and we were getting all kinds of stuff going on um that was tricky we tried a key guard she just pressed down on the key guard and then she would scratch at the screen like this which i think is actually kind of a sensory behavior so she'd scratch at the key guard and she even does that now she'll just scratch at her table and things so we were kind of thinking mm, could do with trying something a bit different a therapist in school did a little bit of an eye gaze trial. And then between maybe this time last year and Christmas, we got some uh, vendors out, had a look at some of their eye gaze products, had a trial of a grid pad with Supercore 30 and some games um, and the Supercore learning grids as well using eye gaze, um, which seemed to go pretty well. Um, but then obviously that all went away because that was all equipment that was on loan. Um, so there's a whole new complex bit here that comes in that's about the UK system for, assist, uh, for AAC, <laughs> um, which is that we have these like region, the NHS, the National Health Service that provides most of our healthcare in the UK, have these regional hub centres and they have all the NHS England funding for AAC and communication devices. They also have really, really stringent criteria about who they will and won't provide for. So we referred to them. The referral was accepted in terms of assessment, um, but they very quickly um, said that Lucy didn't meet their criteria because she wasn't putting two ideas together. That is the NHS England criteria for whether they're in shock. Fund. We're in shock. I can tell. Our, our jaws, <laughs> our jaws dropped. <laughs> yeah. Um, so that meant what they've done is they've worked with us and they've brought their expertise. And that's how we've, we've ended up looking at head tracking because they're like, well, you know, she's got a little bit of a divergent squint and maybe eye gaze isn't quite as consistent as we would like it to be. They've worked really well with us, but ultimately, Ultimately, in terms of funding the device, she doesn't currently meet their criteria. Um, so we need to find another way to fund, which we have sort of partly privately, partly at my, the village that I live in, have a beer festival once a year and they fundraise for various things and bung some money to different causes locally. So we've got some money from all the beer drinkers of the village <laughs> um, to, to fund what we now have, which is um, the iPad. We're using CoughDrop, which is um, a new piece of software, but because that's got head tracking integrated into CoughDrop, we felt that was a really good option. Um, and yeah, we got the new mount yesterday. Um, so that's where we're up to. It's been quite a, it's quite a long journey, really, and a lot to think about. And I think things have, you know, things have changed as we've, we've gone along. But the, the idea that she wasn't going to access it through touch access sort of emerged and we had, we were partly doing kind of work to support a hand function to help her to be able to target alongside the AAC. And there was a point where I kind of thought, at what point are we saying you can't have your AAC until you reach this level of motor skill with your hands? And we, 
that's not okay. We need to accommodate this better. And that's, and the therapist was thinking the same, which is why we went down the eye gaze route and ended up with head tracking. <laughs> I have lots that's, of questions. Lots I'm, of questions. I, I do too. I do okay, too. Go for it. Right, you, you go first, Rachel. So one thing I want to kind of circle back to is this yeah. idea of in the very early stages of AAC, which I think are a challenge for many families, for therapists, everyone's like having this idea that it's too complex, that the yeah. symbols are too complicated. You know, like we hear these things all the time, not just with kids, you know, who are in early intervention and young kids, but we also hear this with other kids with intellectual disability and yeah. all these other things. Right. So my question to you is, you know, obviously you heard this and you were like, no, like it's not too complex, um, which, you know, of course, Chris and I agree with that. Right. <laughs> um, but my question is, how did you navigate that situation where you were kind of, you know, butting heads a little bit with the approach and kind of the face with these limiting beliefs of the providers that were working with your daughter? Because I can guarantee there's parents listening out there right now who are thinking, yeah, I'm in this exact situation where a professional is telling me that, you know, it's too complex or she, you know, can't do it and all of these things. So do you have any, you know, advice or wisdom um, since you kind of went through that and how to combat someone who has a limiting belief who is on your, you know, your daughter's team? Yeah. Oh, yeah. So um, there were a few elements to that. I mean, I think one of the privileges I had in that situation was being a speech and language therapist. Yes. Um, so I was very clearly able to say, well, I, I understood this research. I have investigated for myself. And, and I think there was there's just something about the fact that I was coming at that saying, I am a speech and language therapist, which I think in this particular case helped but it feels really uncomfortable to say that because I don't think that is how it should be, but I think it was. Mm -hmm. um, the, the things that, but that didn't necessarily help her to, to move, I don't think. Mm -hmm. um, what we ended up doing really was kind of agreeing to disagree. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> um, and because we were also at a point where um, Lucy needed reports and things for her educational and edu education and healthcare plan, which is, it's the legal documentation in the UK that kind of secures IEP provision and funding and that kind of thing and, and, mm -hmm. and supports you to decide which placement your child's going to be in that kind of thing. Um, also in the UK, unless you're paying privately, there's not much choice of therapist. You get your NHS therapist and it's kind of, you need to weigh up if you... I had considered, actually, do we need to get another therapist on this? Do we need to pay to get another therapist on this? But it didn't. We agreed to disagree. We kind of negotiated what was going to go into the EHCP um, plan and what targets she was going to write, um, which basically involved including photographs and symbols. So they were just like crazy broad goals that included mm -hmm. everything. So every, mm -hmm. everybody's perspective was covered. Um, I worked with her nursery as well. Um, so I directly presented the information that I had about um, ways of working with to her nursery, mm -hmm. um, who were also at the time being kind of 
a very long arm, but getting some information from the therapist that I'd initially spoken to. So there was that bit of backup into the nursery as well, that there were therapists talking to other professionals who were bringing a different perspective. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was, it was all a bit messy. <clears throat> um, it was best resolved, quite honestly, when Lucy then moved into school and we moved into a different service, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. if I'm mm-hmm. completely honest. And I, right. I just kind of cracked on and... Um, said okay I'm not going to use photographs (laughs) Mm -hmm. I'm not going to put photographs everything on everything in the house I will say that I had I say that but I had already put symbols on everything in the house because like before I learned about core vocabulary that's what I thought I needed to do (laughs) Mm -hmm. but um at least there were symbols and not photographs um but yeah it wasn't it wasn't ideal um Mm -hmm. I look back and I think well could I have handled it differently um but I, I was just quite determined that I was going to put forward that uh, what we were going to do. And, and I think one thing that any parent can do is when you know that you've got well-evidenced information and you're getting your information from really good sources, that you've got firm ground to stand on. And you had firm ground. And you, I could say, this is the best evidence. Mm-hmm. This is what, if you ask AAC specialists anywhere, this is what they're going to be saying. And whether you're a speech and language therapist or not, you can, you can read on Practical AAC, you can listen to the podcast, you can get this information and, mm-hmm. and know that you're on firm ground. And I would say that probably for parents who, who can't say, yeah, well, I'm a therapist too. <laughs> um, right. That would be a way to go. So, yeah. Right. Well, let me ask this. It's sort of a, an adjacent question to Rachel's question. And that is that first speech therapist that you worked with that eventually you just moved away from it, it moved past, uh, aged out of it, yeah. changed. Um, <laughs> How many different therapists have you worked with since that person? Uh, two, three, four, five? Is it? Um, and 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 a part B to that question, Joe, is um, you sort of characterized the the way you were describing decisions that were being made did seem sound like more of a committee now, or it's involved into being more of a committee. Uh, we've decided to try this. We decided yeah. to try that. So. Yeah, yeah. What um, can you talk a little bit about the number of people and then where you are now in that collaborative decision-making process? Yeah, sure. Um, so actually, we're really lucky. We've had one speech therapist since Lucy went to school. <laughs> That's really lucky. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so she has been the, a consistent um, therapist. She's also had a consistent OT within the school setting and video within the school setting. Um, fairly consistent teachers in that it's a really small school getting bigger and bigger but at the minute it's a really small school so everybody knows everybody a bit so even when she was moving classes there's been a bit of kind of dovetailing of teachers into one class and out of another so um that's worked well um so yeah we're really lucky to have just had that one one therapist so in terms of the team who are talking about it it's the teachers it's those therapists but it's the, the we that I've been talking about in terms of very recent decisions includes those therapists from our local ASC hub who've been part of the assessment as well, um, who've brought a real wealth of knowledge in terms of specialist ASC skills and kind of knowing lots and lots of the different technologies. I think that's where they really um, were really, really helpful in the process. And I don't think we would we'd seen a bit of success with eye gaze and I don't think we would have thought about like the, the school therapist and I 
we'd kind of thought, oh, okay, that's working. Let's carry on down that route. And if we hadn't got those other therapists involved from the hub, um, we wouldn't have gone down the head tracking route, which actually at the minute seems like the best option. Well, this sounds excellent. It sounds yeah. like you have um, uh, multiple places to receive or to get support and to help make these decisions together. So there's the hub, the school, and then your own background and research yeah. and and efforts. So, yeah. um, which again, and it sounds like those people are somewhat consistent so that uh, it's not like someone has to relearn who Lucy is and get the entire, well, let me spend three weeks trying to figure out who this person is and what they're yeah. doing is that there's um, there's some carryover. Yeah, and the therapist in school works across all the year groups um, pretty well, except FE now, but yeah, pretty much through all the, the year groups. So she's pretty consistent. Um, yeah. uh, again, we've been lucky. We have been lucky in that respect. Let me ask so, how long has Lucy been uh, practicing with cough drop? So, cough drop, we started trying out when. Mm, I think maybe August now, so probably three months or so. I think that we've kind of been exploring it. Um, yeah, it's two months. I'll tell you how I know because um, we ran out of our free trial just last week. <laughs> so it's two months. Yeah. <laughs> um, that we've been trying now, um, and it's worked really well because of the head tracking being inbuilt into the software. Um, we've actually discovered that head tracking now in the newer iPad is built into that as well, which is just, it's brilliant. Um, but having it built into the, um, the cough drop software just felt really natural. And it means not having too much kit to set up because the, the initial trial we had with head tracking was with a head, um, a camera mouse on top of grid pad. Mm-hmm. Um, so, that was quite a lot of setup and and messing around with bits of equipment. What does the grid look like? Like, what does the the, the home screen look like for people that are not familiar with CoughDrop? Okay, well, the home screen that Lucy's using now is a home screen I um, designed. Okay. Because one of the compromises, um, so we looked at various things. Um, one of the things that we realized as Lucy was um, exploring different access methods was that cell size was really important um, and that she could clearly and intentionally target when there were about 16 cells on the page, um, but not any more than that. Um, and that was with lots and lots of practice and practice of different things and, and kind of like, this is this is where we're going to know she was targeting it and be able to respond appropriately and, and, and reinforce what she's doing. So I've pushed it a little bit in the on cough drop um, uh, I've done something with 16 cells, but the top bar is still separate on cough drop. Um, so I, I've designed what she's doing because there, there wasn't one of their built-in vocabularies that I felt really suited Lucy. And I know oh, the advice is, you know, go with something that's already built. You know, it's been thought about by speech and language therapists. And so I'm kind of like, well, I am one. So I'm going <laughs> to... I'm going to nick all the best bits from all the other packages that we've seen, and I'm going to build something that's robust and is going to work for Lucy. So she's got a 16 cell homepage that has on it a link to a second page. It has a phrases button to link to kind of social phrases, help phrases, those kinds of things. 
Um, and then the main words on the, I feel like I want to get it up and have a look. <laughs> Do it. Get a visual yeah. support. <laughs> I will. I've got it on my phone here. That's the nice thing about cough drop. Yes. Uh, access it from anywhere and yeah. modify it from anywhere, which <laughs> wouldn't that be great if all the AAC apps and uh, systems had that ability for remote programming? Yeah, it would. It would. So we've got on the, on the home screen, the top row is what, turn, good, bad. Then you, I, see like. Then she's got my phrases, stop, go, want, more words, not more now. Mm -hmm. And uh, the decisions I made around which words would go on there were ones that I definitely knew she was using quite consistently in, in her other package. And um, they're also, it's a, because uh, I'm using a filter, you can't say, it's a Fitz, I've used the Fitzgerald key mm -hmm. to color code those because she's used to that as well. Mm -hmm. um, and they're PCS symbols because that's what's consistently used in school and what everything she's had so far is. Um, and yeah, I'm, I'm kind of building it out from there. So when she goes into the more words page, there are certain things that are consistent. So she's still got I see, stop, go, not, and more in the, the center, but then menu choices around the outside. Um, and, you know, I'm still building it out. <laughs> it's, um, but the idea is it's going to be um, robust. It's going to be able to grow with her. It's got a combination of phrases and language-based um, things and some specific activity pages because I think she benefits really well from that because she's still not too skilled at navigating backwards and forwards. So actually having those activity-specific pages. Um, and on those, I've been really mindful of motor planning to try and make sure that cells on those pages are in consistent places with where she would then see them in other menus and things. Um, so that was one of the compromises um, of using cough drop was actually in terms of the language package, there are possibly other language packages in other systems that would have been a really good off the shelf fit, but it meant having a very specific device. It meant going to a specific device with an extra camera on top. Um, when we looked into mounting onto her wheelchair, it's a, it's like a buggy style wheelchair. So it's not got really, really good, big metal poles. So there was only a certain weight you could manage, which limited us kind of mm. to iPad. So there were lots and lots of different factors that meant we landed on cough drop and that I decided, well, I can, I can build something, um, and exercise those linguistic muscles, <laughs> getting that going. You mentioned how Lucy knew some words already. So now it's just really, it sounded like, okay, you, since you know these words and you know these symbols, it's just, this is where the new place is for those same words yeah. you already know. Um, yeah. How, what would you, what, what were the factors in Lucy learning those, those words? What do you think were the, uh, the things that really worked for her so that, that that's how she learned them? Um, consistent modeling and aided language stimulation is what helped to learn them seeing them over and over and over and over again. <laughs>